have uh, you ever been amazed by people that seemingly have everything that a person could want and still are unhappy? How about that baseball player that signs a $135 million contract? And then two years later, somebody signs a contract for $150 million. And so that person who has the $135 million contract is, is uh, unhappy. Have you ever said to yourself, you know, I think I can live on that? You know, if I, if I were making that, I, I, I think I'd be pretty happy. But would we? But would we? There's a, a poem that uh, I was exposed to when I was in high school. It became one of my favorite poems. I still think of it often. It's entitled Richard Corey. And it goes like this. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, the people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown. Clean, favored, and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed. And yet, human when he talked. And still he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning. Ah, and he glittered when he walked. Ah, and he was rich. Yes, richer than a king. And admirably schooled in every grace and fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. The story of a townspeople who look at this wealthy, manly, polite, individual who they longed to be like, who wished that they were in his place, experiencing what he experienced, and then the amazement and bewilderment that he would go home and take his life, and take his life. Are we amazed to discover when Richard Corey is not even as happy as we are, at least the townspeople were not taking their lives? But what is it that amazes us when we think about a Richard Corey? What amazes us? Does it amaze us that he is not happy, or does it amaze us that we think that he ought to be happy? The townspeople were still working hard. They were still cursing the bread. They, they, they still were sacrificing in order to get what Richard Corey had. Their dreams and hopes were still intact. The bubble hadn't been burst for them. We are in a passage of Ecclesiastes which is a real downer. Intentionally so. Because it's meant to burst our bubbles. It's actually intended to dash our hopes. 
You're supposed to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2 and be pretty depressed. Because it's a story about how everything we put our hope in proves to be futile and meaningless. The key words for this morning, and they're not on your your page, and quite frankly, I do these by Friday, and I'm still working on the sermon Friday and Saturday. And uh, I come to understand the text better and better and realize I should have put the key verses in there. Because the key phrase is, and I love the way the NIV translates it, chasing after the wind. The New American Standard, it's striving after the wind. It's the dog chasing its own tail. It's trying to get that which is elusive, that you never can, can grab hold of. And so we find the phrase in verse 14 of chapter 1. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Unable to obtain. Ecclesiastes 1.17 I set my mind to know what wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 2.11 Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. The wind. Solomon realized that everything he tried to obtain, every effort that he put forth, ultimately resulted in futility. What he was looking for, he could never, ever get. Nothing made him happy, nothing made him content. Nothing fulfilled him. The theme of this morning's message is Solomon is unhappy with the responsibility he has to shoulder. So he seeks all kind of pleasure in order to be happy. Solomon is frustrated by the responsibility that he has to fulfill. The disillusionment that is associated with seeking after perfection. Solomon wanted to do what was right and devoted himself wholeheartedly to the task only to find out that when he got to the pot at the end of the rainbow, it was empty. It was empty. And he worked so hard to get to that pot. Solomon had to shoulder a great deal of responsibility. Ecclesiastes 1.12, you can look at your sheet now. Ecclesiastes 1.12, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And Solomon started out by conscientiously seeking to fulfill his God-given responsibilities. He said, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now remember, there's a distinction between what is done under the sun and what's done under, under heaven. So here it's a positive statement. He was trying to understand what God was doing. What God was about. What God's purpose was. He was trying to understand why God had raised him up to be king. And what God wanted Solomon to do as king. And if you remember... Solomon prays, 
and says to God that, that he's but a child. He doesn't know how to lead the children of Israel. And God is pleased with Solomon's prayer and says, So Solomon, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you an understanding heart. So you might know how to lead the children of Israel. So Solomon is blessed with this incredible gift of God. This ability to understand. This ability to have wisdom. And we know people that have great potential. We know people that have a lot of ability. One person has said the greatest curse that can come upon a person is to be voted to be most likely to succeed in their senior class. Because there are a lot of people that have potential that never reach it. That have abilities that they never, ever exercise. But here is this man, Solomon, who's been given tremendous wisdom by God, and we're told in verse 13 that he devoted himself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Not only was he given the potential, but he took the time and exercised the effort to make the most of the gift that God had given to him. God had given to him an ability that Solomon maximized. He reached his potential. He was the wisest man on the face of the earth. He was the wisest man that ever lived up until that time. And the scripture says that there was no one wiser that came after him. So he fulfilled his work. But Solomon found this to be a very unpleasant task, verse 13. He said, it is grievous. It is grievous. And he came to view his responsibilities as a burden. Ecclesiastes 1.13. What heavy burden God has laid on men. Not just himself, but mankind. Solomon discovered that all of our attempts, apart from God, to faithfully exercise our responsibilities are futile in the end. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. Why is the faithful exercise of our duties futile? Why was Solomon's pursuit of wisdom ultimately meaningless? He gives us two reasons. First, because all the wrongs of this world cannot be righted. What is crooked cannot be straightened. Remember, Solomon's primary duty and responsibility was to be a judge over Israel. It was to promote what is good, and it was to retard that which was evil. It was to make Israel a better place, more devoted to God. And he realized, over a period of time, that that which was crooked, that which was wrong, that which was evil, could not be set straight. And because the needs that were present were greater than the resources. Verse 15. And what is lacking cannot be counted. There was so much to be done. So much more than what 
Solomon was able to accomplish. One step forward, five steps back. He was finding it impossible to make the difference in this world that he wanted to make. And so Solomon asked the question, where had all his hard work gotten him? Ecclesiastes 1, 16 and 17. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind. What good has it been? And then here is the reason, here is the frustration. The more Solomon gave himself to pursuit of applying his God-given wisdom, the more unhappy he became. It turned out to be just the opposite of what he anticipated. He thought that by giving himself to wisdom, by rewarding that which is good and punishing that which was evil, that he would be happy and his kingdom would be happy. But that wasn't the case. And he said in verse 18, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the more he increased in knowledge, the more he experienced pain. Verse 18, The more knowledge, the more grief. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, that seems like an odd statement, so turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3, and I want us to look at a, an incident. This incident happens immediately after Solomon becomes king. It's the first thing that's recorded after that prayer that he offered, and God said, I will give you wisdom. And so, here's a story that's given to us to help us understand the wisdom that Solomon had. 1 Kings 3.16 and following. Follows I read. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house. Only the two of us were in the home. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid, her in his laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. So here's the problem that Solomon has to solve. Here's the injustice that he has to write. Two women standing before him with one child, both claiming to be the mother. 
Both have given birth within three days of each other. Both lived in the same house. Both went to bed that night. Both lied next to their child. One rolls over and lays upon the child, and the child dies. So the mother gets up and takes the dead child, puts it next to the woman with a live child, takes the live child and takes it for itself. And so they fight over this child. And now they're brought to Solomon. And he is faced with the question, who is the mother of this child? Verse 23. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son who is living and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. And the king said, get a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king. For she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall neither mine nor yours divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by, by no means kill him. She is his mother. So he said, Ah, who knows whose child this is. Let's cut the child in half. And give each half the child, and that's fair, and both of them can go away. And the real mother is aghast and says, What? You can't be kidding. Give her the child. I don't want this child to die. And then Solomon says, Ah, that's obviously the mother. Verse 28. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. He had the ability to administer justice. That's what it's all about. Notice the next one. Now, King Solomon was king over Israel. That's how this passage starts in Ecclesiastes. I was king in Jerusalem. I gave my heart to understand wisdom and knowledge. To be able to execute justice. And he says it was filled with sorrow and grief. He said, what I found to be lacking, I could not supply. You see, as you contemplate this story, and as you reflect upon it, you begin to realize what Solomon faced as king. What Solomon faced in administering justice. In his wisdom, what did he understand? In his wisdom, he understood the sorrow of these two ladies. He understood bitterness and anger and resentment. He understood a mother's love and care. He understood these women. He understood their hearts. He understood what motivated them. And he was able to make a wise decision because he knew the pain and the heartache of these women. And he knew that the real mother would not want to see this child die. And so he was able to make the right decision. But he could do nothing about leaving 
alleviating the pain and the sorrow of that woman who rolled over on her child and that child was dead. He had no way to make that right. He had no way to undo that. He couldn't deal with these two women now who lived in the same house. And believe me, they weren't going to go back and have the same relationship before. Now that they had before, have you gone through this ordeal? He couldn't undo the misery that they were experiencing as prostitutes and had no man in the house, no friends. As Solomon was able to administer justice, all the time that he did, he ached over the consequences of evil and sinfulness, and he said, I can't make it straight. I can't make it right. And the more cases he heard, and the more justice he laid out, and the more that people marveled at what he understood, the more grieved he became inwardly over what he was understanding about man's sinfulness and their unhappiness and misery of life. He said, what a terrible chore God had given to him. How hard that was. How futile it was. You know, there there are many, many applications to this in life. Some of them I have here. The more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. The closer you get to people, the more likely you'll become disappointed with them. Ever experienced that? Did you ever have people tell you some stuff and you wish you didn't know it? You'd more rather be ignorant about it? Some details you, you just wish that uh, people would keep to themselves. It makes you feel sorry for them. The better you understand an organization, the better you understand its flaws. The more answers you seek, the more questions are raised. The more difference you make, the reality of how little difference you really made sets in. Can you relate to these things? The more you impact one person's life, the more you realize how many lives you haven't impacted. The more you seek to alleviate people's pain, the more you realize how many more people there are out there with the same kinds of pain. And the more work you do, the more you realize there's just no way you can do it all. There's just no way you can meet all the needs. There's just no And you get overwhelmed. And throw up your hand and say, what's the use? It's disillusioning. Life is disillusioning. You pour yourself into your children, and your children don't turn out the way you want. And, and you say to yourself, why all the sacrifice? Why all those sleepless nights? Why did I do that? Where has it gotten me? 
You're passed over for a promotion at work. You say to yourself, why did I do that? I was there every day on time. I tried to give a good day's work. And I'm laid off. Where has it gotten me? You try to be a good husband, a a good wife. And they leave you. You say, where has it gotten me? You go to church. You pray. And you experience these pains. And you say, where has it gotten me? So what does a person do? Who's worked hard? Who's sacrificed? Who's done what they thought is right? Tried to serve God? Only to find that they can't solve the world's problems. They can't alleviate all the needs. What's a person to do? Well, a lot of people choose to do what Solomon did. That's number two. So being unhappy with all of his responsibilities, Solomon sets out to enjoy life. Okay? Let's put all the sorrow and misery behind him. I can't solve the world's problems. I can't make all this stuff right. So, you know, let's just forget about it. Okay? Let's just throw in the towel. Let's realize the task is bigger than, than I can do. I can't make everybody happy, so at least I ought to try to make me, myself happy. Okay? It's time to focus on me. It's time to alleviate my suffering. It's time to alleviate my anguish. I spent all my time trying to help other people. Now it's time to help me. Ever felt that way? I've spent all this time serving others. Now it's time that I get a little time for myself. So Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Solomon could not end the world's misery, so he's going to at least try to end his own. Why should he feel miserable? Why should he be unhappy? Why should he have this grief? He's going to try to alleviate it. Simply seeking to enjoy life is futile as well. Verse 2, he gives us the summation at the, end, at the beginning. I said of laughter, it's madness, of pleasure. What does it accomplish? That's his conclusion. But now he unfolds for us how he sought to make himself happy. How he sought to enjoy life. Well, first, Solomon sought pleasure through drinking. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. That sounds like a paradox. But Solomon said, you know, now remember, Solomon's really wise. Wisest man on the face of the earth. And Solomon says, I'm unhappy. What can I do to make, my, make me happy? And what would increase my experience? What would make me even more knowledgeable? What would make me even more understanding of people and their, and their condition? So, same, so he says, I, I decided to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was still with me. This is a kind of pointed illustration. And those of you who are not a child of the 60s, this won't mean anything to you. But how many of you can remember the name Timothy Leary? 
two people. And guess what? It's not going to mean a lot to a whole lot of people. Okay. Timothy Leary was a professor at Harvard University. And Timothy Leary was known for his experimentation with psychedelic drugs. And he believed that through the experimentation with psychedelic drugs, that he was going to become a better individual. He believed he was going to become a better psychologist. He would understand people's experience better. He would get in touch with his own emotions. It was he who, uh, according to the phrase, to turn on and uh, tune out and drop out or whatever. I just... I went by. Anyway, that was Timothy Leary. And he was going to improve his experience through these psychedelic drugs. Well, he ruined his life. And Solomon thought, I'm going to improve my experience. I'm going to understand even more, plus, I'm going to enjoy life by drinking wine. Well, we certainly live in a day and age. A lot of people think that they're going to escape their problems by taking drugs. Stimulating their bodies. Doing something. To make them feel better. And that can be as little as even doing exercise. Some way to escape my misery and troubles by stimulating my, my body. Well, maybe that will make me happy. Secondly, Solomon sought pleasure through building things for himself. Ecclesiastes 2.4 I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Solomon did great things for himself. The NIV translates Ecclesiastes 2.4, I undertook great projects. King James translates this literally, and I think the best, when it translates Ecclesiastes 2.4, I made me great works. I made me great works. And the reason I say that is because this is a rather unique and interesting Hebrew phrase. That most often is used in reference to God. For example, 1 Samuel 12:24 Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things or works he has done. Psalm 126:2 verse 2, The Lord has done great things. He said, I have done great things. But I didn't finish the two verses that I Quoted concerning God. Consider what great things He has done for us. Psalm 126, verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. That God had done these beneficial, magnificent, and wonderful things for us. Solomon said, I did these wonderful and magnificent things 
for me. I used my wealth. I used my everything to bring myself happiness. Thirdly, Solomon sought pleasure through adding additional servants. I bought male and female servants. And I had home-born slaves. Thinking that if he had more and more people to serve him, he'd be happier. Solomon sought pleasure by becoming a collector and adding to his wealth. Ecclesiastes 2.8 Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So, he collected the things kings collect. He collected the things that people in power collect. And the idea here is that he really didn't have anything to do with them. They weren't useful to him. He had everything he needed. He just collected them because he liked to look at them. It's like the person that has a, a car collection of, of 70 cars. Well, you can't drive 70 cars every day, but you can look at them. You can be happy that you have them. And the problem with the collection is it never ends. So he had this huge collection of stuff. Solomon sought pleasure through entertainment. Verse 8, Ecclesiastes 2.8. I provided for myself male and female singers. Solomon sought pleasure through sexual promiscuity. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and pleasures of men, many concubines. Well, that's an understatement. 300 wives, 700 concubines. A thousand sexual partners. How many people today think that they're going to be happy by having an affair? Or by having premarital sex? Through sexual promiscuity, I'm going to be happy. By being wealthy, I'm going to be happy. By building this house, I'm going to be happy. Solomon tried it all. Every single way. A human being thinks that they're going to gain happiness. Solomon gave it his best shot. And he had the resources and the abilities to do it. Solomon took pleasure in being proud of all that he accomplished. It says, my heart took delight in all my work. Paraded around, showed it off. He was, he was proud. Solomon thought that all these things were owed him. And this is the reward for all my labor. In the beginning, Solomon looked at himself as blessed. He looked at what God had done for him. At this period of time, Solomon looked at all that he had done for himself. He no longer was grateful and appreciative. He saw himself as deserving. And it was owed him. He no longer saw himself as the, as the benefacting king that was alleviating pain and suffering for his, for his people. He now viewed them as servants. And as a means for engrandizing himself. His mind changed. However, none of these things made Solomon truly happy. In the end, he was no happier than we started on this binge. 
Solomon stepped back and evaluated his life. Well, excuse me. Uh, under uh, the under ten, Solomon thought all these things were owed him. Look at Ecclesiastes two ten. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. There's the idea that anything that, that mankind could want, he had it within his power. He had it within his grasp. There was nothing, humanly speaking, that Solomon couldn't do, that mankind wanted to do. He had the wealth to do it. He had the wisdom to do it. He had the position to do it. He had the power to do it. He had the prominence to do it. He could do it, and he did it. He didn't say no to himself for anything. Ecclesiastes 2, 11, under 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. Nothing to be gained by it. His life wasn't enriched. His life wasn't improved. He was no happier at the end than when he started. The pain wasn't taken away. The grief wasn't gone. In fact, now he's got guilt. And, and the reality is, we're going to see as Ecclesiastes goes on, he's worse off than when he started. Worse off than when he started. He found it to be a chasing after wind. Chasing after wind. You know, that's a sad thing. That's a sad thing. When people chase after wind. After that which is elusive. They find out that in the end they were they're worse off than when they started. Life is more miserable now than when it was before they started. You think of marriages and infidelity, and people are more happy in their infidelity than they were in what they thought was an unhappy marriage. What's the point of this passage? What are we to draw away from this? Well, it's to make us stop and reflect and to think about our own dreams, our own aspirations, our own goals, the inward motivations of our own hearts. And to ask ourselves, quite frankly and candidly, what wind are we chasing after? What is the elusive thing that we say to ourselves? If I had that, I would be happy. What is that, that, in your life? What is keeping you going? What makes you wake up in the morning and say, today is worthwhile. Today is meaningful. Because it's one step closer to getting that. What's the that? A house, a car, retirement, a degree, a wife, a husband, a child. What is it that I'm telling myself, if I have this, I will be happy? 
What are you pinning your hopes on? What's your dream? I get this and I'm going to be happy. Because what Ecclesiastes is saying, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Because when you get it, guess what? You're not going to be happy. If you can't be contented now, you won't be contented then. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. Paul said, my circumstances really don't matter. My circumstances aren't going to determine my happiness, Paul says. Most of us think that our circumstances do determine our happiness. And we will be happier when our circumstance changes. And what I need to do is change my circumstance. I need to get that house. I need to get that car. I need to lose that weight. I need to have that surgery. I need to be healthier. I need to be wiser. I need to be smarter. I need more respect. I need greater approval. Whatever that is, it's illusionary. You're chasing after wind. You're never ever to get your hands on it. It's always one step away. Always to be replaced by something else. Be honest with yourself. Think back. Think back from the time that you were a child. And you said to yourself time and time again, if I just could get this, I would be happy. And you got it. And you weren't. This is big stuff. Because when you're six, and it's a train, and you want a model car, it's not all that important. But when you're in a marriage, and you're saying to yourself, if I could just be out of this marriage, if I could just have this kind of a husband, or if I just could have this kind of wife, or if I could just have this car, or if I could just have this house, or if I could just get this job, or if I could just could move here, or whatever it is, it's destructive. And it leads to pain. And it leads to sorrow. And it leads to fertility. And it leads to a sense of emptiness. Solomon wants to shatter our dreams. But I have no fear. He has something to replace it with. But that's not for today. Today is to take good look at ourselves and say, what have I been telling myself all this time that will really make me happy? Who is the Richard Corey in my life? 
who am I looking at and saying, man, if, if I were in their shoes, I would be happy. And whoever it is, if it's based on something other than their personal relationship with God, I can tell you, they're not satisfied. And they're not happy. Don't end up wishing you could live life all over again. Don't chase the wind. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to gain a perspective on life that we don't waste it chasing after the wind, after illusionary hopes and dreams that somehow we think are going to satisfy us and when at the end of our life we have striven so hard and we actually finally have gotten it only to find that we're really not content and satisfied and happy after all. Guard us in our hopes and aspirations. Oh Lord, help us to seek you and your face. Help us, Lord, to seek your provision. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.